Hello, I'm Andy Hart from SBD Automotive and welcome to the second in our series of case technology webinars. I'd like to thank you for your response to the first episode where we looked at case as a whole. We received far more questions and comments than I expected and we've been responding to as many as we can. I would also like to thank everyone who has shared these videos with colleagues around the world. Much of the auto industry is looking to work remotely now, keeping in touch with Skype, Zoom, Teams, which makes today's topic all the more relevant to automotive. As today's episode, we're focusing on the C of case, connectivity. I'm joined today by, once again, Lee Coleman, Head of Connected Research at SPD Automotive. We're also joined by Jack Palmer, a member of Lee's team who heads up many of the data monetization consulting projects. So let's kick off, first of all, with a big picture view around connected cars. Connected cars have been with us for almost 20 years now, since the late 90s, early 2000s, when car companies first started exploring the value of connectivity. And really what we've seen within the industry are five stages that the industry has gone through. The first stage was very much around how to make cars connected in the first place. So there are a lot of questions, uh, practical concerns, technical issues to overcome around embedding SIM cards into the car finding ways to cover the cost of the connectivity, um, developing the right kind of partnerships with telecom operators and service providers, developing the back-end IT systems. And all of that was kind of the first hurdle that the industry had to go through. Once cars became more connected, the shift became more about how we can offer more and more functionality and more services uh, on top of that connection. So what we saw over the last five or six years was a rapid increase in the number of features and services being offered as car companies look to compete with each other to offer more functionality to drivers and make their cars more attractive to the end user. We have seen that slowing down over the last year, whilst over the last five years, a significant number of new features were launched by car companies. Over the last 12 months, we've seen that amount decrease significantly. And that's partly because the industry has been shifting towards the next stage, stage three of connectivity, which is really around commercializing connectivity uh, and deriving more value from connectivity for internal gain. Uh, so car companies have been shifting their strategies to explore data monetization, which is why Jack's on the call today, uh, and internal use cases for how data can be used to justify not just the cost of the program, but really maximize the return on investment of connected car programs. The next stage beyond that, stage four, uh, is really around how you optimize services. We've seen a lot of car companies really struggle with that transition from being car makers to operating services. And a lot of the KPIs that we track within the industry through our research point towards suboptimal performance of connected car services where activation rates, renewal rates continue to be quite low, which ultimately means that the number of connected cars in the marketplace isn't high enough to add enough value to most connected car programs. So that's really stage four, is how do you maximize those KPIs? How do you become a more optimized service provider rather than just a car company? Stage five is really the nirvana, and that's really around personalization. So how do we make sure that we shift the value of connected cars into generating greater loyalty amongst customers. Because ultimately that's what connected cars add the most value to, is if you can increase your loyalty by X percent, the value to the OEM is significant. So personalization is a key tool for that. Whilst car companies have traditionally been very good at maintaining customer loyalty through their brand image, 
it's always been harder to create more tangible stickiness within a brand. Connectivity gives OEMs that opportunity because if a connected car can learn more about you, learn about what you like, what you don't like, and create a more personalized experience for you, it becomes a lot harder to change from your brand to another brand because it means changing all of your preferences uh, and all of the, the lessons that that car has learned about you and reapplying those into a, into a new car. So that's really the different stages that we're going through uh, as an industry. And really what I want to go through in, in more detail today with Lee and Jack is what some of the implications are for those different stages, where we think we're at as an industry, uh, and what some of the challenges are going to be moving forward. But before we get to that, uh, I'd first like to give Lee and Jack both an opportunity to just explain a bit more about their own background, some of the projects that they've been involved in, uh, and also to tell us what they're excited about in terms of cars becoming more connected in the future. So Lee, can I start with you? So I've got a, a background that's really all about connected car. I started in telecoms, moved into product planning for connected services in, uh, in a car maker. And then I got a little frustrated with the slow development cycles uh, in automotive and joined uh, aftermarket fleet and telematics. And uh, what struck me there was that you could move from a proof of concept to a product in weeks rather than years. And I think that's where the car industry is, is moving to, perhaps less about a client-facing product or consumer-facing product. Those relationships uh, that are getting tighter between the car companies and other ecosystem players should translate into better experiences uh, for end users and eventually uh, better value for money as well. Jack, over to you. Give us a little bit of background as, as to where you've been over your career and what you're excited about um, when it comes to connected cars. Yes, Andy. So it's, it's interesting to hear Lee's background because mine is very different to that. I, I um, got into um, automotive a little bit by accident, but by, by no means am I a petrol head or a car enthusiast. But I'm really interested in the way that technology can, can change people's lives. And certainly in the automotive space, we've seen how data and services are really having a positive impact on people's lives and can have a really great impact on, on society as a whole. And, and so to, to look at uh, data monetization, and I, I even kind of hesitate to call it monetization, we, we like to think of it as utilization because it's not just about the money, it's also about the value to, to the consumer. So to look at that over the last um, few years has been fascinating to see how different car makers have approached it. And I think over the next few years, it's going to be really, really exciting in terms of what actually comes from this. So staying with you, Jack, where, where do you see those big opportunities coming from for car makers uh, when it comes to generating value from data and from services? Building on the point that I mentioned there and not thinking first and foremost about the kind of the revenue that drops out the bottom of this equation, it really should be thought about with the consumer in, in mind first and how to create services that are going to keep them happy, going to keep them loyal and coming back. So once you've solved that big problem and you've got that at the, the front of your mind, should you then start to think about the, the very nice byproduct of revenue? And there are lots of willing industries that are in need of data. And the, the car, as we know, is packed full of sensors uh, that are feeding back data in real time. And industries like the, the insurance space, our cities, uh, advertising community, 
um, are really, really interested in this. Uh, so there's a great opportunity uh, to create stickiness amongst consumers, but, but also have a new revenue stream that hasn't previously been there. And what do you think some of the, the pain points are for car makers? Um, it sounds quite simple when you describe it that way. You get data out of the car and then you just use it in, in whatever way is most valuable. But what are some of the pain points around actually getting the data out of the car and getting it into the hands of the, the, the right users? Lee, your background um, was in fleet for many years. Can you give us a bit more background as to why this data can be so valuable to fleet operators? Yeah, so in the aftermarket, um, in certain verticals at least, fleet management is uh, is super penetrated. You know, it can be as high as 90 or even 100% uh, in trucking and transportation, for example. Less so in the passenger car sector. Uh, because the stack of use cases isn't so high. However, when you've got a car leaving a leaving a factory with embedded communication, that modem has access to uh, vehicle fault data and status information, that is super useful to passenger vehicle fleet managers. If you consider then in some countries, uh, fleet leasing is as high as 50% of the stock that an OEM makes, You've got an operating company there that wants to have more visibility of their assets so that they can manage costs on them. And uh, you've got a win-win. The car company can sell data. Uh, their big client, the lease operators, can run their business more effectively. So that, that I think, is a great case for two companies working together for a common benefit. It feels like there are a number of these use cases where the value is quite clearly defined on both sides. It's that win-win that you described, Lee. And the complexity isn't significant because the type of data being extracted from the car is the usual type of data that you would expect to see anyway coming out of connected cars. So location, um, timestamps, those kind of that, that type of information that can help fleet managers. There are kind of another subset of use cases that seem to be more complicated. Um, so, for example, um, it might involve tier one suppliers trying to buy back access to the data from from their own systems for a, a range of different reasons, where there's kind of maybe a strategic complexity around it. Uh, or it could involve accessing data that's deeper in the car, that's linked to different ECUs, uh, where those ECUs aren't already connected to, to the telematics control unit. That seems to create some kind of organizational gridlock. Um, Leo, Jack, can you kind of talk us through what some of the organizational challenges are that, that you've seen in some of the programs that you were involved in around working together within OEMs to, to liberate that data? From what we've seen, I think um, the challenge that OEMs are seeing at the moment is that there's no blueprint for, for what's gone before. So there's no list of which use cases are allowed, which use cases are uh, too sensitive. And there's, a lots, of, there's lots of different um, competing bodies of people within OEMs who are looking at this. It could be the legal department, uh, could be the R&D or product planning department. And a lot of the times they're not necessarily communicating as well as they, as well as they can. So we are breaking new ground here. And there are a lot of our projects that we've, uh, we've done in the last few months. We're trying to bring some clarity on these types of issues. We've also seen a new ecosystem evolve around the industry and around OEMs to support external data monetization with data marketplaces like Autonomo, uh, niche data aggregators like LexisNexis who are focusing on using that data for, for new industries like insurers. Despite that, a lot of car companies are still searching for ways to play a more direct role in monetizing data. Given what you just said, Jack, around the, the challenges that OEMs face, do you think that OEMs are going to be able to succeed to have in, in having more of a direct sales channel to end users? 
Or, or do you think they're likely to rely more on partners? Or do you think it'll be a hybrid mm. of both? Yeah, I think it's another case, like I've explained with the use cases, is in the fact that there's no single winning use case. There's no single winning strategy here. We've seen lots of different approaches by lots of different OEM groups. And I think what we're seeing right now is OEMs really covering all bases because a direct approach has been taken up by some OEMs, but then at the same time, they've partnered with marketplaces or they've pursued B2B partnerships in a very direct way at the same time. There's no strategy that has come to the surface that I could point to and say, this is what you have to do and this will be the winning strategy. It's still very much in flux at the moment. And having these conversations and figuring out who's out there in terms of the ecosystem that exists is really important. Something I'd like to add to that, Jack, is uh, those ecosystems and players that are positioning themselves as brokers of data between the car companies and third parties who might like to either ingest data themselves or even offer data back to the OEM. The value of that broken relationship is all about having scale, having size on both sides of the brokering table so that deals can be made. As a consumer of data, many use cases are fueled by volume and frequency of data. And you need to have buyers lined up who require that and are convinced that the volume's there. And I think it's fair to say that most of those brokers have been focusing first and foremost on volume before they can attract the buying side of the, the arrangement. Yeah, absolutely. Makes sense. We haven't talked much about the big elephant in the room, Google. Lee, what role do you see Android Automotive and Google Automotive services playing in the future of connected cars? Well, Android, you know, fueled by Google, has been an option for car makers for some time now. First of all, we saw screen duplication with Android Auto uh, having phenomenal penetration. What fueled that, obviously, was the, uh, the sheer ubiquity of devices that would support the car, and that's led car makers to basically overcome the compatibility issue that they were facing with their more proprietary smartphone integration solutions. CarPlay obviously doing something similar. Next, we move to native uh, Android, most commonly applied with um, Android open source project. And then the, the full stack, if you like, where Google's applications, automotive centric applications, are offered on top with Google Automotive Services, basically a one-stop shop for an OEM that wants to have some really good content at a low cost in their car. Now that's a, that full stack option is quite attractive to OEMs that aren't necessarily investing or don't have the resources to put into brand specific navigation. It's great for the end user because they get a familiar platform that's always fresh, is low cost to them, and has some fairly well-informed intelligent services thanks to the sort of crowd nature of, uh, of many of those apps. Obviously, the downside to the car company is that they lose some of their competitive differentiation. If there's a stampede towards screen duplication or a native Android with Google Automotive Services on top, leaves precious little room for differentiation. So there's a widening area a widening group of OEMs that want to harness the built-in benefits of having a very well-developed ecosystem of engineers, developers, working into an open source project, AOSP, but still allowing themselves to differentiate. The challenge there, of course, is going to be at the app layer 
you've got a, a massive amount of crowd data and development being funneled into those vehicle-centric apps like navigation and infotainment. It's pretty difficult for a car company to achieve the scale of learning from that crowd and the individual compared to the Google Automotive Services. So that's where the challenge lies. So it feels like the auto industry has been falling in and out of love with the concept of Android Automotive and Google Automotive Services with different OEMs and even different teams within the same OEM swaying between wanting to adopt it and not wanting to adopt it. A few years ago, it felt like quite a bullish proposition to say that a a significant proportion of the industry was going to shift in that direction. What do you think is a kind of realistic view, a pragmatic view of where the industry is going to end up in terms of the adoption, the overall adoption level of Android Automotive and on top of that Google Automotive Services? And where do you think the rest of the OEMs are likely to go beyond that? Yeah, that's a great question. I I see it stratifying really into display audio, which will be a thin layer at uh, base spec vehicles, moving up through screen duplication. Uh, Then we'll have a reasonable number, perhaps 25% of market, adopting Android Automotive with Google Automotive Services just because it ticks so many boxes at a low cost. However, Car companies, there's hardly any car company you could point to, would want to give up on the brand definition altogether and not develop their own embedded nav and sophisticated entertainment system, especially as vehicles uh, have more and more distributed I.O., so input-output, lots of screens and methods of interacting uh, with the content. There is more scope for car makers to differentiate that that in-vehicle experience if they have more control. And this is where we're starting to see a convergence of technologies building into a cost-effective structure using common hardware hypervisors and even even multiple operating systems, some that are focused uh, purely on general purpose uh, operations like infotainment, nav, and so on, and others that require more safety-critical items that need a real-time operating systems. It's possible now to run both on uh, common hardware, and it's such a complex issue. We're just about to publish a report, it's about 150 pages in length on this area, looking at the options that are in front of car makers. I think the the most bold approach um, I would point to is VW, that's trying to put all of its development expertise, thousands of developers, uh, into making a cost-effective platform, VWOS, that's capable of not just infotainment, but running other, pretty much all aspects of the vehicle that still allows differentiation while getting familiar content into the car from other ecosystem partners. It's really interesting, Lee, and, and it'd be really interesting to see from that report and over the coming 12 months, how many OEMs take a very bold approach to infotainment and connectivity strategies and opt either in or out of uh, the, the Google or Android automotive operating ecosystem and how many go for kind of a hybrid hedging their bets approach and we have seen a number of those where they pick different operating systems for different platforms and kind of keep their options open for the longer term so it's going to be an interesting space to watch over the coming years so we're going to shift over now to another common question that we've been getting over the last few weeks and and months which is around the impact of covid Uh, on connectivity programs, both in terms of the kind of immediate impact on the launch of new services potentially, but also the longer term opportunities and threats to vehicle connectivity. Jack, do you want to kick us off with your views on how COVID could affect our world? 
I think one of the, the most direct impacts at the moment is that um, it's impossible for consumers to, to have that traditional dealership experience. Really, the, the dealers have lost that touch point, and that's when connectivity becomes really, really critical to, to an OEM and a dealer, dealership network, thinking about how to push messages to consumers. This could be um, also in the context of over-the-air updates, pushing new useful services to consumers. Those are definitely opportunities that if an OEM has that hardware and software out there right now can be a massive plus. However, if OEMs are slightly behind on this and don't have this in the field, then they're really going to be feeling the pain. Yeah, that's really interesting, Jack. Lee, what about you? What, what are your thoughts? Well, we work a lot with product planners in the connected car team trying to hit that moving target of what will my competitor have in market in three years time. One of the impacts of COVID has been delays to launches, vehicle launches, SOPs, due to the fact that you just can't get parts, you can't do field testing. That, that on one hand provides a headache for the product planner, you know, launches slip by six months, is their product still going to be competitive at launch? However, in the world of connected services, that can be a great advantage. Software-defined services um, that are either in the car or the cloud can be enabled quicker. And those services that might have been locked out of the, um, of the launch suddenly can be finding themselves back on the rotor, uh, back on the list of planned launch services. So this is, in one way, great news for product planners so that they can make uh, reconsider uh, the competitiveness of their delayed product and work with the connectivity, especially if they've got a nice flexible cloud framework to get really competitive features into the vehicle at launch. Thanks for that, Lee. So as we look at the connected car landscape for this year, it's worth pointing out that XPD forecasts that globally, 48% of new cars sold will be fitted with an embedded connectivity unit. So it's really important to understand not just how many cars are being sold with connectivity, but how many of those cars have been actually connected and activated by the consumer or by the dealer? And once they get to the free trial end, what proportion of those are converting into a, a paid subscription and how many of those are then renewing on an annual cycle? And we've seen massive differences across the industry um, between different OEMs and across different regions in terms of those KPIs. Lee, can you talk us through from the programs that you've been involved in and the projects that you've done, why you think there are some differences when it comes to achieving good activation rates, achieving good renewal rates, good conversion rates? Yeah, this is really one of the most important aspects of Connected Car Programme. The success or failure, if you want to call it that, uh, differences are staggering brand to brand, region to region. If we just look at activation rates, they can vary from 40% to 100%. The guys who are getting it right offer multiple channels to activate service. They take out the friction in that process of activating and they provide an incentive for the customer to do it. Uh, you know, really attractive, useful, convenience enabling features. Really important is to get the sales message across. We do funnel studies where we find from consumers that we survey that there's an incredible lack of awareness uh, that the vehicle even has connected services available or specced on the, on the trim that the customer selected. If there's no awareness at the point of sale, there's very little chance of that converting into an activation. So the journey begins with awareness, then appeal, then a low friction sign up process, and then usage that converts into 
actual pleasant, convenient, sticky services. The guys who are coming down the bottom of that funnel are seeing renewals that help in a really important use case, and that's retention of customers. If you can move the needle on a really important stat like revenue spent at dealer on servicing maintenance and repairs, and some of our clients have seen really quite satisfying movement on that KPI. The best in industry we would point to is a 100% improvement in retention over five years um, at the franchise dealership. Now that's an incredible impact on ARPU. And that's through great use of CRM through that new channel that exists with the customer. But it all starts with activation. And when we benchmark the best activation processes versus the worst into those 40 to 100% numbers. Yeah, it's really interesting, Lee, isn't it? It's, it's almost death by a thousand cuts with some of these programs where all of the effort is put up front in developing the services, the IT, the, the, the commercial partnerships to be able to offer services. But then that last leg of the journey of streamlining the, the customer journey, of registering, making registration a lot easier can sometimes be really clunky. I remember a couple of years ago, I was doing some research on, on one OEM and I visited a few of their dealerships. Um, and the dealer explained to me that in order to register their customers to the connected car program, there were some email domains that weren't accepted by the system. So the dealer had to create a new email address for the customer, um, usually with Gmail, uh, send the details to that back to the customer so that the customer could then use that within the registration form and finally get through that registration page. And whilst he said he did that for, for all of his or most of his customers, I really doubted whether he really went through that effort. So if you don't make it as easy and, and quick as possible for the customer to get through some of these processes, then you're just going to see this massive drop, aren't you, in activation rate, which will affect the overall ROI of the program in a massive way. Absolutely. And food for thought is the second owner as well. Um, if the first owner wasn't aware that services were available in the car that they could activate and sign up for, what hope does the second user have or the second owner? If we consider the stat of, you know, three years ago, 38% of vehicles in the US shipped with a modem. Now those cars are coming onto the used car market. How many of those used car buyers are going to be aware of those services and how to sign up? That's why yeah. we're seeing an increasing move towards identity management in the head unit. So there's a reminder there, if you're not familiar with the vehicle spec, that, hey, this uh, this car's asking me to log in. Yeah. To tie this into to the work that I do in terms of looking at data utilisation, if uh, at the start of this, the, the registration and the activation process is managed poorly and, you, and you're seeing rates that are below 50%, then the whole idea of monetizing data internally and externally falls apart. It really is very contingent on this. It's a foundational principle of a connected car program. Absolutely, absolutely. It's probably the least sexiest topic to cover within a connected car program. And one of the afterthoughts often within the program is just the back end, the tail end, looking at KPIs. But it is so crucial. Like you said, Jack, it has a multiplier effect, where if you don't get it right at the beginning, then you start to lose more and more cars to the point where we expect there to be more disconnected cars um, in the US than connected cars over the coming years. Andy, that KPI does get sexy if you can show a 20% improvement on a year on year. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So to wrap up, we're running out of time here, but I'd like to 
get each of you to look into your crystal balls and tell me one thing that you expect to be significantly different for connected cars in 2025 compared to now. From what I'm seeing, I really do think that um, consumers are going to demand more control over their data. The idea of transparency, fairness, perhaps even getting paid directly for the data insights that are transferred to a technology company, I feel are going to get really, really important in the in the next few years. And we've already started to see this, and we've seen some car companies try to get ahead of this in terms of offering very accessible portals and uh, kind of tutorials on how to get your hands on this data. So I think in the years towards 2025, that's going to be a really critical battle that's going to go on between consumers and big multinational technology companies, not just automotive companies. The observation I'd make is that the, the link that the car company has with their consumer is getting tighter and tighter. As we move to 100% embedded connectivity, Car companies are able to profile their users with consent to understand the usage habits. What are consumers enjoying, not enjoying? What do they use most frequently? Where, when, why? What's driving that usage? When we start including services like VPA, e-commerce, predictive services like NAV, parking, etc., this starts to become really interesting because you've got a feedback cycle. You can feed the demand and you can make the services more intelligent by the data that you're getting back from the crowd, not just the individual. And that's where we start to see the whole ecosystem really blossom for the benefit of the, of the consumer. So we're gonna see genuine convenience and intelligent services offered to consumers. And we're going to see much faster launches as car companies have got their infrastructures in place, including OTA updates. We're going to see that, that dream that we've all been hoping for of much, much faster time to market. So from product planners having the idea to it being in the, in the consumer's hands, it's going to be much faster. And that includes during the life of the vehicle. Excellent. Well, thank you all for joining. And thank you, Lee and Jack, for sharing some really interesting insights there. We've, we've covered a huge amount of ground. And even so, it still feels like we're just scratching the surface. I'd like to encourage you all to share your thoughts and questions, either by using the feedback box below or by just sending us an email, whatever's easiest. Next week, we have Alan and Deepa joining from the autonomous car team, and we're going to be looking in more depth around how autonomous cars are changing, uh, where we are compared to where the industry promised that we would be by now, what car companies are doing to try and get through that threshold of level three and level four, um, what startups are doing differently on their end uh, within cities and within micromobility. And we're going to be bringing all that together into a clear roadmap that we can share with with the audience um, of where we see the market going and how fast we see the market moving. So thank you all again for joining and we look forward to seeing you all next week.